You're listening to a breakout session from the Downtown Seattle Association's State of Downtown, recorded on February 8th, 2019, with sessions presented by Schwabi, Williamson, and Wyatt. This session, Technology and Transportation, the Future of Urban Mobility, moderated by Jennifer Wheeland of Nelson Nygaard, featuring thoughts and ideas from Margie Bradway, Portland Metro Deputy Director for Transportation Planning, Kevin Desmond, CEO of TransLink, and Philip Washington, CEO of LA Metro. For other breakout sessions and more from the DSA's State of Downtown 2019, visit downtownseattle.org SOD. Thank you all. Thank you so much for sticking around this afternoon. Um, we were talking before that if you look up when you're looking out the window, it looks really bad. So just look down. The streets are fine. The sidewalks are fine. There's nothing to worry about. Seattle has fantastic transportation, so we'll get, we'll get home no problem. But thank you for sticking around this afternoon on a Friday afternoon. I am incredibly excited and honored to have the opportunity to moderate this panel about transportation, mobility, and the future of those things here in Seattle. And I'm joined by three incredible panelists who bring perspectives from across the country and particularly from along the West Coast. And so I'm gonna ask them to introduce themselves. I'll make just a couple of opening remarks and then we're gonna dive right into some conversation about capacity constraints, about new technologies, and then a final challenge question before we open things up for a little Q&A from all of you. So, Phil, can you, would you like to start? Uh, yes, uh, I'm Philip Washington. I'm the uh, CEO of Los Angeles uh, Metro. I'm happy to be here, and uh, I look forward to the discussion. Great. Thank you. Margie? Yeah, hi. Is my okay, microphone working? I'm Margie Bradway. I'm Deputy Director of Portland Metro, and just so we know what that is in the Portland area, that's the regional government. Um, and it's in Portland, the regional government is the only independently elected government, regional government in the United States. In fact, Peter, who you heard from at lunch today, started his career at Metro um, and really overseeing the functions of transportation, land use, and housing. Uh, happy to be here. Hi, I'm, I'm Kevin Desmond. I'm the CEO of TransLink, TransLink in Vancouver. You said in the country, so you've obviously annexed uh, at least the Vancouver region, let alone British Columbia. Cascadia, just expands. Maybe people here would rather have it the opposite. But, you know. um, so TransLink is, is kind of uh, a mashup of sound transit and metro, for those of you from this region, and we have various different uh, road and pedestrian uh, responsibilities as well. I've been there for almost three years. Before then, I was the general manager of King County Metro for about 11 and a half years, working with Mr. Harbor, Mr. Rogoff, and uh, all of our colleagues here. Great. Mm -hmm. So thank you all again for being here. Um, just a couple more words about me. It may seem a little bit strange that we're about to talk about transportation in Seattle with no one from Seattle on the panel. Um, and... I am not speaking for the city of Seattle. I am not the voice of transportation in Seattle, but I have worked in transportation in Seattle for about a dozen years. I am currently with Nelson Nygaard. We're a transportation planning firm. I lead our Seattle office and was with the Seattle Department of Transportation for about eight years before that. So have had the chance to see many of these issues, both from the public and the private side of things. Um, and I am excited to engage this group of folks in thinking a little bit more about what some of our opportunities are moving forward. 
So our frame for today's discussion, um, when we were putting this panel together and starting some conversation with the panelists, um, Jonathan Hopkins, who was the executive director of Commute Seattle, you can wave, Jonathan, had a big hand in helping to shape this. And, and in one of our first conversations, Jonathan was telling us that he had just been in discussion with somebody who referred to transportation as the civic religion of Seattle, which I really liked. So I wanted to incorporate that. Um, and I think, you know, even when you reflect back to the presentations at lunch and the discussion, transportation and mobility was a huge piece of what came up throughout, the, throughout all of the lunch programming. So we're excited to build on that. The frame that we wanted to put on this discussion is thinking about giving some advice to SDOT's new director. So Sam Zimbabwe joined the Department of Transportation just a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if we should blame him for the fact that we've had two snowstorms since he started or if we should appreciate the fact that he's coming from a snowy place and seems to know how to deal with this. Um, so we want to think about as we, as we build on the opportunities that we have in Seattle, as we take advantage of all the good things that have happened, what's some advice that we want to give Sam? What lessons can we take to him from the work that's happened in your cities and your regions? So in terms of a couple of the opportunities we have to build on, we talked about a lot of these at lunch. But when we think about commuting trends in downtown, in 2017, almost half of the people who came to work in downtown Seattle took transit, whether bus or rail, which is tremendous. And only a quarter of people drove alone. Those numbers are better than what you're seeing in any big city in the US. Vancouver probably has this beat, but don't brag too much, Kevin. That is happening at the same time jobs are increasing, at the same time we're having more people living downtown, and so that's fantastic. There's a lot to build on there. But then in terms of our challenges, we've got space constraints. We're growing. We don't have a lot more room to do it. We are officially into dun, 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 the period of maximum constraint. If you thought the viaduct closure was the period of maximum constraint, no, 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 no. That was just week, week one, two, and three. Now we're moving fully into convention center redevelopment, tunnel closing to buses, all sorts of things happening. We've got new technologies on the streets all the time. And there are real opportunities and challenges when it comes to funding and in terms of partnerships. So there are a lot of difficult decisions to make, and we are excited to learn from what some of our peer cities and regions have done in starting to make some of those difficult choices themselves. So with that... Let's start off by talking about space. So one of the challenges that all of our cities and regions are facing as places that are really desirable is that we're growing, we need to move more people, and we need to move more people in either the same amount of space or less space. We've all got very ambitious plans for transit expansion. A lot of projects to deliver by 2028, right, Phil? Yeah. So as we are thinking about how do we do that, how do we deliver on those promises of moving more people, when we're running out of space, when we're limited in terms of our transit capacity, I'm curious to know from you, and, and Phil, I think we'll start with you on this, what are some of the trade-offs that are necessary to make all of this work? What about some of the partnerships? And what role do you see technology playing? Well, first of all, uh, let me uh, just acknowledge Peter Rogoff here, who's looking at his phone. Um, 
<laughs> oh, it's snowing. Okay. No. no, no, I want to acknowledge uh, Peter. Peter is a longtime uh, friend, and you have a great leader here in Seattle, and Peter Rogoff. Um, I, I think you know the challenges that we face are some of the same. Now, you know, I don't know about giving advice to the new guy. I mean, I, you know, uh, you know, because. Uh, many of these things uh, are the same, but yet they're unique. Mm -hmm. uh, so in Los Angeles, we have uh, an incredibly large expansion program. It's called Measure M. Uh, we went to the ballot the same time Seattle did in November of 2016. We were successful um, with a new half-cent sales tax that um, we were bold enough to ask the public uh, to approve something that had no end, no sunset. Uh, and um, if that would have failed, I probably would not be, be there now. Uh, <laughs> but we were bold enough to do that, and the voters approved that uh, by a 71% margin. And so that has resulted in massive build-out. We are in full bill mode, I call it. Uh, full bill mode where we are doing... Uh, 40 projects in the next 40 years. There's the 28 by 2028 initiative that's leading up to the 2028 Olympics. Um, we are managing between 15 and 20 billion dollars of projects now uh, that are in uh, design and construction. Uh, and this full build out comes with partnerships uh, with stakeholders uh, throughout. L.A. County. L.A. County uh, is the largest county in America. Uh, the last time I looked, it was larger than 42 states, wow. uh, just the county. Uh, there's almost 11 million people in the county, uh, and there's a lot of wishes, and there's a lot of hostage-taking uh, when we're talking about projects and uh, what I like to uh, call keeping the proverbial ornaments off the project Christmas tree. Um, and still keeping those projects on time and on budget. So I think that uh, many of the trade-offs and the partnerships with the 88 cities in the county uh, really has everything to do with getting these projects done. At the same time, uh, we are doing what we call a next-gen study to look at all of the bus service that we have on the street. Now, most transit agencies, you know, uh, do little tweaks three or four times a year um, but we are just wiping the canvas clean right now, or the slate clean right now, looking at all of our services on the street. That uh, holistic look has not been done in L.A. County um, for the last 25 or 30 years. And so we're looking to speed up our bus service is one, uh, where 70 percent of our riders are on the bus, uh, and speeding up that service through this next-gen study and restructuring routes and all that uh, is paramount, and at the same time, building all these infrastructure projects uh, and all the challenges that come with that. So I think the space constraints and the partnerships and all of these things, I think, make it very, very challenging to manage these multi-billion dollar projects, uh, let alone um, much of the oversight uh, if it's federally funded and um, those kinds of things, and working with the city uh, for permitting and, and street closures and all of these things that come with these projects. So it's a challenge.
when we're all trying to make everything happen at the same time, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And Margie and Kevin, I mean, you you both are living in areas where that Seattle often looks to in terms of being ahead of us for transit. Um, and so what are what are some of the solutions that you have brought to bear to be able to deliver on projects more quickly and really move forward to expand transit capacity? Sure. I can, you know, I'm going to rephrase that question a little sure. bit. Um, so we are seeing in the Portland area the same growth uh, that Seattle has. You know, we've got high GDP, low employment, great. Um, with that comes the same problems. Um, we're seeing... Um, judgeification happen at an amazing rate, a rate in which our bureaucratic systems can't keep up with. We're seeing displacement. Uh, we're seeing rents skyrocket. So rent now in Portland, uh, the average rent is 1100 which is a 56% growth um, from 2010. And so when we're asking these questions about space, I rephrase it a little bit and ask for whom. We're, you know, this is, we t- tend to think of these things as infrastructure, but who are we saving space for? And then what is our return on investment in that space? Which makes that transit argument for you, but let's not forget the people that we're serving. And this, I think, will come up a little bit later when we talk about technology, making sure we understand the for whom and what's the return on investment. So to do Metro, um, we oversee land use and transportation historically, and we took a bold move this year in the last election, and we put out there to the voters an affordable housing measure, $658 million affordable housing measure to serve 12,000 people. That was new for us. It it passed resoundingly. And what that allows us to do is then take what we already have as our TOD program and really be thoughtful about how we're placing affordable housing and how it fits with our transit system. So, for example, the rail line that we're working on right now, it's our light rail line we call the MAX, Southwest Corridor, We're doing this whole analysis called SWEDS, which is a Southwest Equitable Development Strategy that allows us to have a community conversation and stakeholders about how we buy up land, invest in affordable housing, and keep local businesses there so they're not displaced. We're seven years before this goes in, right? We're about, you know, it takes in Portland anyway, unfortunately, about... 10 years for <laughs> from start to finish for a rail line to go in. We're about halfway through the process, and we're now having these conversations way ahead. So we're trying new strategies that are really land use and housing strategies. But I think, you know, the, the space problem and some of our um, transportation problems, there are housing and land use solutions that we need to be thinking about. Um, so this is just an example of some of the things we're doing. So um, not dissimilar to Los Angeles and and Portland, a little bit of the the story arc in Vancouver in 2015, uh, they put a referendum, they call it the plebiscite, um, there in front of uh, voters for a sales tax, half a cent uh, sales tax, and it lost and lost pretty badly to expand transit for what was known as the mayor's uh, 10-year plan. uh, about a year later, they hired me, but more importantly, uh, the, new, um, the new government, so the timing was very good. The new government in uh, Ottawa, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's government, announced a 10-year major, major national funding. So in Canada, $22 billion nationally is a lot of money, but it completely reinvigorated this plan that it, that it seemed more abundant. And in fact, when they hired me, I was not even hired 
to bring the plan back. And three days after I was hired, my new best friend, Justin Trudeau, announced <laughs> the, uh, the transit funding. So we're now on a path of a massive uh, expansion program. We're now um, in our third year um, of the program. Uh, and the hallmark of it was to get service out as quickly as possible. We needed to address um, overcrowding in the system and to be able to start expanding to our suburbs. So very similar to King County in this region where the inner city here in Seattle is, is pretty well served. As you go further out from the, from the core, not as much so, and that's creating a lot of the transportation challenges, some of which you heard in Peter Calthorpe's uh, um, uh, remarks today. So we're aggressively putting out as much service as we can while we're doing major capital uh, expansion with our SkyTrain network. In late 2016, uh, we opened an 11-kilometer uh, extension, which is doing extremely well. Uh, we've got a subway project that should be under construction in about um, a year, six-kilometer uh, extension, and we're going to be soon doing another um, up to 16-kilometer uh, extension at SkyTrain into, um, into the suburbs. Housing is the biggest crisis, however, in the Vancouver region. So if anyone sort of follows that, you know, it, it's downright obscene when you kind of think about some of the prices of housing uh, in that region. And when we talk a little bit about TOD in the, in the panel later on here, it's very much a cautionary tale um, on the housing affordability problems that we've been facing in Vancouver and, and I think how Seattle is thinking about that, how this region is thinking about it. What is, is very important, though, Back to that really good timing with the Trudeau administration announcing uh, the funding. It could reinvigorate our program. We could start putting out uh, service very quickly. At the same time, the general um, business community, the general population in our region and the political establishment realize the direct linkage between better transportation and housing affordability. They are inextricably bound because where are people moving? They're moving further out, uh, outside of the core where the housing's more affordable and the transit's not as good. Yeah. And clearly the solution has to be, how do you link up that better land use planning with, with smarter development, clearly further away from the core, but we've got to get out better transit as quickly as, as possible. So one of the, I think, the hallmarks of Vancouver, the sort of Vancouver way, is that better linkage between land use planning and, and transportation. That's something that I think this region still needs to do better. We can do better in Vancouver, by the way, in a lot of different ways, and we can probably talk some more about it. But that is, you know, that housing transportation theme is very, very uh, important, but it will propel better transportation services in our region because of that. Let's dig in on that a little bit sure. in terms of, of the land use component, the housing component. So in, in Seattle, we've got about 62% of our city that's still zoned for single family. Because of some of the investments that have been made in, in transit, we now have about 64% of our residents that are near a frequent transit line or near frequent transit service. So that's a good news story, but at the same time, we can't really effectively accommodate that much more growth with the zoning that we have. And so one of the things Seattle is doing is looking at transit corridors programs. Margie, you mentioned in Portland, you know, really having to be intentional about building equity and avoiding displacement as part of that. So maybe if, um, Margie, why don't we start with you and have you tell us a little bit more about the Southwest Corridor, but what are some of those strategies that we could look to use in Seattle to really integrate the land use and transportation, build in equity, and make sure that access is a key piece of what we're thinking about. Sure, I can dive in a little bit more on how we're operationalizing it for the people who you know, do the day-to-day -day work. And 
One thing we did with the affordable housing measure is that we asked for a set aside to, to, to buy land. And we had that authority anyway, at least the region did as part of our TOD program, but we said we want land just for affordable housing. So that gives us, you know, $10 million annually a year that we can just continue to be able to grab land when it becomes available. But the other thing is really having weekly, monthly, daily calls with your housing development and transportation. You can't do it enough because, you know, a lot of times you're solving, those bureaus are solving, or agencies, whatever you call it here, um, you're solving for the same problems. You're seeing the same, that where there's um, transportation, I think where you said uh, affordability issues where there's a lack of transit, there's also usually a lack of housing or there's housing being moved further out. So making sure that you're thinking and working multidisciplinary all the time. Um, and then I think one of the other things we're doing with our measure, so we're going to do a measure, a transportation measure in 2020. We're gearing up and we've looked at our friends in LA and Seattle to take some lessons learned. It's based on our analysis when we put an equity lens on it, it really looks like we're going to have to do a BRT quicker, lighter, faster, because to your point, it allows us to go to, to reach more people quicker and faster. Um, it will have a light rail component, but probably not as heavy of light rail as Seattle. And let's be frank, the feds are not really providing much support for rail these days. So that's our other thing that we've got in front of us. But we're hoping to do a big measure and then have that equity lens again over it, making sure serving the most people, getting the highest return on investment. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to, to spin that a little bit to funding as well. And, and yeah. Bill, I'd love for you to talk a bit about public-private partnerships. Mm -hmm. So we know there's never going to be enough money coming from either the federal <laughs> government or despite the many local transportation measures that have been passed in Seattle and in our regions. Um, Phil led development of one of the first public-private partnerships in the U.S. for transit and is looking at that strategy as something to help deliver in L.A. Can you talk about sure. the role of the private sector as well? Sure. Uh, before I go there, I just want to weigh in on the conversation, the displacement, gentrification, and all that, and transit-oriented communities, mm -hmm. I call it, not so much TOD. <clears throat> and... There was, uh, you know, traditional thinking when I first got into the transportation business that this idea of transit-oriented development, you know, we were just the T in TOD. And we should not get involved in, you know, the housing thing and all of that. Uh, and I always thought that, uh, and, and, you know, we were just talking about this earlier about um, the, the fact that housing, affordable housing, is pushed further and further out from the urban core. And so the lack of attainable and affordable housing does, in fact, impact my bottom line. It does, because as people move out further and further from the urban core, I have to put bus service out there because it won't be long before those people will be at your board meeting saying, hey, we out here in... Rancho Cucamonga somewhere, <laughs> and that's actually a it's real, a real town. <laughs> um, and we need bus service out there. So it impacts our bottom line, the lack of affordable housing. Uh, so I've, you know, I've always submitted that we must, that is our business, uh, housing and transit. So uh, though we don't control displacement and all the gentrification, and have the authority to really impact that fully, we can uh, impact it in our own way 
uh, at Metro, what we've said is that if you are a developer and you are going to develop around our station on our property, uh, that you must have at least, at least residential, you must have at least 35% affordable housing. And that is board approved. We took it to our board. They approved it. So I just wanted to throw that in. Mm -hmm. Public-private partnerships. I do believe that we must have every tool in the project delivery toolbox, uh, whether it's design bill, design bid bill, uh, CMGC, uh, and public-private partnership. Uh, when you talk about sales tax revenue, in our case, about $860 million a year through sales tax for Measure M, uh, you have to figure out how you can deliver projects uh, quicker than just $860 million a year. So then uh, you have full funding grant agreements, you have uh, your sales tax revenue, you have maybe some state funding. Uh, but if we want to accelerate projects and if we want to transfer risk uh, from the public entity to the private sector, then we need to be thinking about P3s. Um, the P3 that we put together uh, in Colorado, uh, the Eagle P3, which um, Peter helped us with when he was at uh, uh, FTA, uh, I think is a model. I mean, the private sector came in as a $2.2 billion um, program, uh, and the private sector put equity of about $57 million in that, and also they're paying back the private activity bonds that we issued, the public sector uh, issued. So all told, about $500 million from the private sector paid back through um, um, availability payments over time. Uh, we had a $1.03 billion full funding grant agreement, and the rest was sales tax revenue. We got that project done 11 years uh, faster than it would have been done, and that is the line from Denver International Airport to downtown, uh, a second line of about 10 miles and part of a third line. We never would have got that done. We were talking about this earlier, that it's hard to quantify... Uh, the time savings at 11 years, it's hard to say, you know, to quantify that. But we know that we, you know, we saved a lot in terms of jobs and we brought those uh, up, you know, sooner than they would have. So I think P3s uh, must be in our toolbox. Uh, the fact that we saved about $305 million on that project through the use of a P3 uh, and was able to take that savings and launch another line in the city of Aurora shows a big benefit there as well. So I think that uh, as we look at project delivery and we look at innovative project delivery, public-private partnerships, I think, will be um, one of the, the hallmarks uh, around this country. Now, granted, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, uh, give other folks a chance, is that um, there are a lot of pitfalls um, with P3s. It's not a panacea. We know that. Um, and uh, you really have to put together a good deal because change orders and things like that, I mean, you, you could be beat up, you know, uh, from the private sector. And I think the, the biggest challenge that the public entity, the public sector has to overcome um, is the level of sophistication that the private sector brings to the deal 
uh, because they've, do, they've been doing these for a long time, and the level of knowledge in the public agencies is not that, is not that deep, if you will. And so I think that is a big, big challenge that uh, these folks are coming from the private sector with a wealth of knowledge, uh, and there's not that much institutional knowledge in P3s uh, in, in the public sector. I want to take that public sector partnership piece. Thank you very much for that. Public, public-private partnerships and integration of the public and private sector is something that Seattle is doing and has been doing, but maybe not as quickly and not as aggressively as other regions. And so I think there's an opportunity for us there. I want to I pivot that public-private partnership discussion a bit to think about the other key space where the private sector is having a huge influence, which is in increasing the number of mobility options that we have on our streets, that we have on our sidewalks, and that we have in our cities. We've started by talking about transit. Um, as you heard at lunch, you know, transit is the way that we move the most people. It's going to continue to be the way that we move the most people. It's the backbone of our cities. It's the backbone of all great cities. But every day, there are new mobility options out there. We've got a couple of images right behind your heads, beautiful Christmas-colored bikes here in Seattle. Um, and you know, other cities, including many of yours, are experimenting with scooters and other types of mobility options. So how do you see those new mobility services integrating with the systems that we have? What do you see as opportunities and pitfalls there? Kevin, why don't we start with you on this? I would have loved to answer the housing issue, so I'm going to come back to that. But first, you didn't <laughs> you ask wrap, me. Can you wrap new mobility the, services the development into and housing? the TOD and stuff. But since you didn't ask do me, it. but I, I will. But um, So let me do, do that first, and I'll talk about, I'll answer um, your question, because I think we have a lot to share uh, in Vancouver. And how many of you all have ever been to Vancouver before? Wow. Okay, I always ask this to the audience, how many of you have a compass card? Dude, way to go, Malin. You're my man. How many of you have an Orca card? That's never mind. So, um, so thank you. That's cool. We have five people with compass cards here. That's way cool. So, if you've been to Vancouver, you've seen the extraordinary density around the SkyTrain network. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. We've got um, development that envelops um, several of our stations. Uh, I think the, our latest stat is development around the SkyTrain network that's immediately adjacent to the guideway itself is something like 42,000 uh, 42, homes uh, have been are being built uh, around that, that network. Just phenomenal uh, density. Uh, the prices of those units um, go for about 10 to 20 percent higher than general markets, so they're very appealing. But that's a double-edged sword. And that's, that's also, I think, um, creating some of the, the housing affordability. So as we're thinking about TOD here in Seattle around uh, Lincoln and so forth, something to be thinking about. They are so very appealing. They're going to drive up the price. And then what are you doing for affordability and so forth? The other side of the coin is as we are developing our new major projects, we have to do business cases around our projects. The federal and provincial governments both require them. We are entering into direct agreements with the cities in which we're building those developments, and they've got to meet various different housing and pedestrian goals as well. So back to partnership. We forge that partnership as part of the investment itself. 
So if, if city of Vancouver, the city of Surrey, if you're going to get the billions of dollars in investments, you've got to bring something back. We can bring it back to our bottom line to say that's butts and seats. Right. Um, but more importantly, it's how we can use the leverage of our public sector transportation dollars to get a different outcome, uh, whether it's in the station area or along the corridor. And the second thing we're doing, we're working with what's called Metro Vancouver. It's kind of analogous to the PSRC here with our frequent transit network. All new housing in, in our region, 82% of all new housing in our region is within walking distance of a transit line. And we have a very extension, extensive frequent transit network. So the next thing we need to work on, and we've got to get the development community involved in this, we have to get the cities more active in pushing it, is how we're build, building a different type of housing, the more affordable housing along the bus network, which then can feed our high capacity. So whether it's things like Rapid Ride here, we call them Beeline uh, in Vancouver, BRT, the extensive BRT network. I think what we saw from Peter in his remarks today, that's the thing we have to be focused on as well. As much as we're focusing on building the TOD at Northgate or on Capitol Hill or wherever here, what are we doing along those major bus corridors as well? Because you can also build less expensively if you're not building the 50-story uh, towers and so forth. Now, back to um, technology and so forth. So we famously do not have Uber and Lyft. We don't have these either. Yes, dockless um, bikes. <laughs> However, um, Vancouver, um, by some studies, has the highest per capita use of shared um, cars and so forth anywhere in the world. So it's, a, it's an environment that really is, is um, accepting of these kind of shared services. So we know that they're coming. I think my big thing, we were, Margie and I have been uh, talking about this, it's kind of a debate, is you know, scooters and bike lanes and pedestrian and so forth. So I think the, the, the big argument, the, the big challenge we have now and in the very near fu future is for that limited space between building front to building front, mm -hmm. the right-of-way itself. How do you reallocate the space effectively on that right-of-way so that you have space for pedestrians, you have space for electric assist bikes, for regular bikes and, and motorized scooters, and for high-capacity transit at the same time? And we've got to be thinking about that. And then back to partnerships in the private sector, you know, an organization like DSA, what can the private sector do to help reorient those priorities faster than we would ordinarily? You know, we're, you know those of us in the transit industry and the planning industry, you take away one on-street parking space, you know, it's, it's just, it's calamity for that particular, um, yeah. right? We've, been, we've all been through that. Well, we've got to work with the private sector to make them understand, to help prove that it's not, it's not that kind of trade-off. It's not an either-or. You can take away the parking space, create a much better transportation environment, and those retailers are still going to be able to thrive. So we have to, I mean, that, that is really, I think, is ground zero uh, for the next, uh, the next thing that we as transportation deliverers and planners and road planners as well um, need to be focused on. Let's change how the right-of-way is going to play itself out. Sure, I can speak to this. Um, I'll give you kind of my big picture thinking on this and then end with why I think scooters are awesome. Um, <laughs> as in Portland, we have it all. We were the first city to do dockless bike share. We were one of the first cities um, to willingly enter into a, a dockless bike, or um, I'm sorry, scooter pilot. It wasn't done to us. It was done for us um, and other technologies. So one, one thing, just big picture, when we're thinking about the intersection of micro transit micro mobility is now i think a term of art in our profession um, the private sector is going to keep disrupting transportation 
It's going to happen again and again and again. We as public are not going to keep up with it. So we have to get used to this idea that transportation and mobility as we know it is going to change. And we may, we may never be able to fully regulate it, control it. I, I do believe that. And I, the second point on that is I think modes are going to go away, right? We don't, we, this, this thinking that bike, ped, freight, you know, that, that's out the door. We don't have that anymore. We have, our modes are going to be much more nuanced and fluid. I mean, what, what is Amazon's delivery? Is that freight? Is that freight when they're hiring these little shipments to come out? Um, you know, this, this e-commerce. I, so I think we need to get out of our old construct and think about, pe- you know, how things and people are moving and talk about it as overall mobility and get out of our modal construct. Um, the last thing, though, I think in this private-public partnership is the it's not as simple as getting out of the private company's way. I'm not, I'm not arguing that. I think you enter into these conversations and you realize that there's a Venn diagram where this, this, public, this public interest is, is what it is, right? We want to deliver affordable, efficient mobility to all the people who live in our jurisdictions. And it overlaps just a little bit or somewhat with private goals, but it's not a complete overlap, right? They have a business bottom line. They have to meet it. So you find the space in between. And for for the Portland region, scooters ended up being an amazing low-carbon option that was popular. The safety data was pretty good on it. And the best thing that came out of the city of Portland did a fantastic survey. If you haven't read our scooter survey, we did a four-month pilot, and we asked all four companies who launched to give us all their data. And then we we had the companies then survey all the people who use the data. And what the data came back was to say that, yeah, it is replacing Uber and Lyft trips in our downtown. And it's actually grabbing people. Scooters are taking away trips from people who wouldn't normally ride a bike. And it was reducing VMT. It's really compelling data. Um, So then that then tells the city, after four months of studying scooters, to say, you know what? We do need to start thinking about light lanes or different ways to do infrastructure. We gathered the data. The data, you know, proves it. And then, you know, the technology is always quicker than the infrastructure and the bureaucratic systems. Then it allows us to really rethink, okay, what does mobility look like in a constrained right-of-way? And, yeah, we're going to have scooters mixed with bikes and we're going to probably have some other new mode that pops up from a year or two from now, and they're going to be sharing these light lanes. So that's my take on it. What it but what it, to me, one sec, Phil, is, yeah. is simply how fast can jurisdictions, and this is largely the municipalities, react and start building the facilities that create that proper separation between human-powered movement, electric power, or, you know, biking, bus lanes, and still cars, is how do we make that happen? So that's why we don't have scooters in Vancouver. That's why there are no scooters here yet. We've got to move and advance and accelerate some of the infrastructure that can come with these fast-moving, you know, um, disruptive um, service technologies. Sorry, Phil. Yeah, I was just going to add, yeah, we, we have them all. I mean, we have the scooters. We manage the bike program. Uh, we're doing uh, all of those things. Uh, we have a partnership with VIA, and we're doing microtransit with smaller vehicles and the whole deal. Uh, we even got this, we just started this pilot of uh, Get Around called Get Around, where um, uh, folks can, if you pull your car into a parking ride, somebody else can use it. You know what I mean? So you can make a little money uh, if you at work. You know, it's it's uh, it's incredible. <clears throat> we just started that pilot this week. Um, but one of the things I wanted to mention is we we are also exploring uh, the regulation of uh, TNCs, the Ubers and Lyfts. 
And, you know, the idea is why should they, I'm talking about the Ubers and Lyfts, use our public right of way uh, to become billionaires? You know what I mean? I mean, they're, use, they're contributing to congestion. They're using public facilities, streets, curbs, everything else, uh, and we get nothing for it. And so we want to uh, incur a fee uh, on rides. Oh, yeah. And we're looking at that. I know some other cities are doing that we now. We have a nice, healthy fee. It, it's good Perfect. money. How yeah. much is yours? Uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it, it depends, but I'll send you Absolutely. the data later. It Absolutely. makes millions for the city of Portland. Absolutely. Millions. And we, we, we should get some of that money. Because I, I think, you know, uh, our fare box and all of that is not going to be enough to sustain uh, and to uh, fund everything that we need to do to keep our systems running. And this is the same thing about transit-oriented communities and everything else. We should be creating tax increment finance districts, uh, and we should be generating some of that revenue that comes from development around our stations. And so, you know, right now in California, um, the agency, we cannot create a TIF district. Um, and we definitely don't get any of the money if it is created. And so what we're proposing is uh, authorization to allow us, the transit, the transportation authority, to create TIF districts uh, and receive some of the revenue or realize some of the revenue uh, from the development that goes on around our stations. Because guess what? We're bringing the value. Transit is bringing the value to these areas. Uh, and, you know, what happens when... Uh, we put in a station. Rents go up and everything else. So uh, we're pushing on those kinds of things. Uh, can I speak to that a little bit? Because I, I think one, uh, if you've got any students in the room, this would be like a good white paper for you to work on because <laughs> there's legal and policy issues. I think cities like L.A., um, like a lot of the NACDO cities, are now realizing the impact, the vehicle miles traveled, the impact of these TNCs. 43% of the trips, if you look at New York study, are single, uh, there's no one in the back seat. So it's just a single occupancy vehicle trip. So they're driving around. So yeah, research is pretty set on that. Um, but the regulatory hook, the legal hook we have to regulate these is either traffic safety or public safety. That's all we've got. So in the city of Portland, we say, okay, we're going we're gonna to hammer down on traffic safety. We're going to say if you get one speeding ticket, you're out, which is true which I'm really proud of that work we did with that. Um, we're going to pay you a fee because, you know, we, you're serving our curbside space a little bit. Um, that's the argument we used for the fee. Um, so I guess we have a curbside laws. Um, and then we have public safety laws, you know, people who ride in these safe. But we don't have laws, really good laws. I guess we have policies, but not really good legal hooks for TNCs to say, you shall not cause more congestion. And so we're, we're, everybody's approaching this backwards by clamping down on these traffic and public safety laws when the back of their head, their conversations are, we really don't want you driving around our streets mm -hmm. and becoming billionaires. So help us figure that out. Um, where are you? Who's my law student who's going to do that, a legal student? <laughs> what kind of laws do we need in place? So, what we, so um, we're in the midst of the, basically the, the rulemaking to allow TNCs to come to the Vancouver region. It's actually provincial uh, legislation that will make it happen. And the, the province has a lot of politics, which is why uh, there aren't TNCs at this point in time, electoral politics. But the province has, has 
proposed caps and boundaries to really seriously limit TNCs. We've taken the position at TransLink. I've taken the position. We need to really kind of embrace it. They're coming. The public's mm -hmm. demanding it. We want to find ways to better partner with them, but at the same time, not find the really serious negatives that, we're, that, that have happened in other cities, whether it's traffic congestion, declining transit ridership, you know, exactly to Phil's uh, point. So what we've proposed, really instead of caps, is from a pricing standpoint, we'd, there'd be licensing fees, but they'd be based on time of day. It basically, peak period pricing. We're going to talk about yeah. congestion pricing shortly. Maybe, maybe this and this, is, is, a this is a little bit of our back end into it, where if Uber and Lyft and whoever want to operate during the peak period of time, when we have the most congestion anyway and the best transit service at that right. period of time, then you're going to pay a higher fee, a licensing fee, at that point in time. And then they might, they might also be charging you know, their surge pricing. Then we turn that fee back for other public goods. Yeah. So then that's where, that's where you can pay for the partnerships for the first mile, last mile, mm -hmm. where Uber and Lyft may not be as willing to, to participate, but if we can, we can give them a little bit of uh, financing with that through their licensing fees. Similarly for our, our paratransit service, uh, the cab service, the supplemental cab service, very, very important. So we've pushed that and we've had private conversations with both of those companies and they very privately have said, yeah, we can, we can accept that. We don't like it, um, but we can accept it. So it's not, I think like Chicago, for example, they just have a fee. I forget what the right. fee is, five right. bucks for five a trip or, or whatever and so forth. So we're taking it to the next level to say, now bring it to more of a, of, of a congestion management approach and then bring those dollars back to other public goods. Mm -hmm. yeah. And building on that, um, we've seen in the media Uber, for example, coming out with an editorial or an op-ed that says, we support congestion pricing. And it's building on this idea, right, that if we're going to price and if we're going to charge Uber and Lyft or if we're going to charge taxis or whomever for the use of the roads, particularly at our most congested times, is there a broader approach that we need to be taking? So all of our cities are dealing with congestion. We're dealing with climate change impacts. And we're dealing with the fact that our transport system is inequitable. We have opportunities to address that, and we have opportunities to make that worse, quite frankly. So one of the tools that we are looking at in Seattle, the mayor's been very open about her interest in congestion pricing. All of the cities and regions represented up here are studying congestion pricing or are about to. And so I want to ask the question, who's going to be first? Los Angeles. There <laughs> oh. we go. <laughs> Tell us why. Tell us why. Well, I we mean, would love for you to be first. Go yeah, right ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we'll, we'll take our bullets or whatever. No, I, you know, Los Angeles, you know, the region is the number one congested region, I think, in the world. Um, and uh, I think for the sixth straight year, we were number one. And I don't care where you go around the world, you say Los Angeles, they may think Hollywood, and then they just think cars. Um, so we are pursuing this. Uh, we briefed our board. I briefed uh, my board in December. Last month, I'm briefing them again uh, this month, asking for approval to move forward with a feasibility study to determine which congestion pricing model works, um, where we should pilot congestion pricing. Um, I think that congestion pricing is the only way to get rid of congestion. Um, now, you know, on one half of this big equation, 
about mobility and all of that, we've, we've passed Measure M, we're building all of this transit infrastructure. That's great. But we still have not figured out how to change behavior of single occupancy drivers and vehicles. And so this other, we, we have to use the hammer, I think, of congestion pricing. Uh, and people talk about, well, you know, how, what do you do about the equity piece? Well, I, I think there are uh, just unbelievable inequities in the current system. Um, because most of your freeways and all that were built uh, next to disadvantaged communities, and they are breathing in all of the emissions and everything. So we have an, uh, a system that is inequitable right now. And so the idea of congestion pricing, the idea of uh, embarking on a feasibility study and a pilot uh, to where uh, what model works best and where, and at the same time, do we have, do we have viable transit options uh, that are in the pilot area is another big thing. And what I've said in all of these presentations uh, is I think if we do this right, and we will, uh, that it can lead to free transit for everybody with the pay for being congestion pricing. Uh, and we can plug revenues back into... Um, disadvantaged communities um, to increase frequency of transit and all of those things, uh, but the idea that we can uh, have a free transit system for everybody in the county with the pay-for being congestion pricing uh, is my next big adventure. Margie and Kevin, are you willing to let L.A. take the lead on this? Yes. Uh, Anything you want to add? <laughs> Come on, we might, we might beat you to it. We might beat you to it. Um, but I'm not, um, I'm going to be super honest that I'm not sure the path we're going down right now in Oregon is the path I would recommend to other jurisdictions. And I'll tell you why. Um, there was a conversation in our state legislature last year. We had a huge bill that increased gas tax by 10%. And... As always, there was a transit component, there was a highway component, and there was other policy components. So you had progressive stakeholders, as well as, frankly, City of Portland and Metro going down there saying, congestion pricing, we need the state to give us the authority to do so. You also had highway interest and more conservative interest down there saying, we need to, we need to widen these big highways in the Portland Metro region. And the state legislature said, aha, We'll put these two together, and we'll give you the authority, but only on these two highway sections. Um, and, and we'll give that authority to ODOT. So ODOT says, okay, we have the authority to do this. The past year, they brought everyone together. Um, our counselor had a seat at the table. We were very, very involved. The problem with having the legislature pick the location is you're, we never could get to the agreement. Are we doing this to manage demand? Or are we doing this to just pay for the highways? And it's really important to have clarity on that ahead of time. And so now we're in the awkward position where um, the, the stakeholder committees kind of agreed kind of on the two locations. FHWA said, you shall proceed. So we've got a four-year NEPA window before we start constructing, so we really might beat you to it. Um, but um, now, uh, <laughs> um, in these two locations, one in the heart of this downtown city of Portland, which Frankly, people don't really want widen, and then one out more in a suburban location in Clackamas County called I-205, where they definitely want to use the money to widen it. 
And we're stepping in and the regional government saying, we want to do a regional study and ask all these questions. What happens to transit? What is the equity impacts? What are the indirect impacts? And we're going to go forward and study it anyways, because we have to answer those questions in order to honestly be able to sign the LPA at the end, which us in the city of Portland and our transit partners need to do. Uh, but we're doing it at the back end. So my caution is don't let your legislature or any of your electeds get ahead of you until you have the conversation of why are you pricing? Uh, it's such an important thing to get um, agreement on. So to the why are you you're pricing, good segue. So the journey that, that, that we've been on, um, our mayors as part of our 10-year funding plan. Uh, so I'm in part governed by all 23 of our mayors. It's one of my uh, policy bodies. As we're in looking out into the future, we, we see two really, really serious problems. One over the next 30 years, Metro Vancouver is supposed to take another million people out of the two and a half million we have today. There will be no more um, road or highway capacity built in that time, and there's very little highway capacity, you know, such as we know here uh, in the United States. And we're very reliant on gas tax. So part of my funding is the 17 cents per liter um, gas taxes for our, our operations and, and capital. So a liter is almost a quart. So multiply 17 times four, you see how much we take from um, uh, gas tax. That is the terminal revenue source. We know that in the United States in terms of how it's going to be funded. Province of BC announced in December a clean deep, um, BC plan that by 2050, no internal combustion cars will be sold in, in, in BC. And they've got a you know, plan to get there fairly quickly. So even in 10 years, we're seeing a fairly significant drop in our gas tax. Plus, we get gas tax from the Fed. So you've got this population problem that will create worse and worse congestion with less and less revenue. So we were trying to think, all right, how does mobility pricing kind of fit into that. We also know that we cannot build enough public transit on public transit dollars to relieve all of the congestion. So you have to have a price point. We spent much of 2017 and 2018 doing a study. We, we commissioned a, an independent um, body of about um, 13 citizens, uh, prominent citizens, to sort of run a study, did a lot of polling, a lot of work. Um, maybe a third of the public is willing to think about mobility pricing, a third, hell no, and another third maybe is, is convincible. But, but basically what we find, and it should not be a surprise to anyone, the main issues that the public say is affordability. So are you going to make it more expensive for us to travel? Um, um, uh, equity. Absolutely. Equity is a big, is a big concern. And it's a lot of different reasons that both uh, Phil and Margie uh, talked about. Um, and is there an alternative? And that's kind of the key. That's our catch-22. Mm -hmm. So if we were trying to impose congestion pricing tomorrow, the suburbs would have no choice but to pay more because the, tran the transit's not as good. So the trick is, how do you get the better transit out first or almost simultaneous to when you introduce the, um, um, uh, the mobility pricing regime. We have an interesting example here in, in our region with the 520 tolling project. I always, I always used to say it's, it's this, this triple win where the public sector really did the right thing. They needed to replace the bridge. They instituted uh, dynamic tolling on the bridge, and we increased transit service by 25% on the bridge using in part some federal dollars and metro and sound transit. Well, guess what? Transit ridership increased markedly on the 520 bridge. Traffic on the 520 bridge was much more manageable, mm -hmm. and they're making their revenue. Yeah. 
on it. So, I, you know, you can see how you can make that make that work. And you, you solved part of the, at least the equity problem, maybe not as much, but you did provide the transit service at the same time. It's an interesting uh, model going forward. As to if we're going to be first, no way. Um, there's a long way to go, and the province took tolls off of the bridges uh, when this new government was elected a year and a half ago. Thank you. Sorry. I was figuring out whether I had time for questions or not. Um, all right. So gauntlets have been thrown, sort of, yeah. softly. Yeah. Maybe. Partnerships could be formed. Uh, we have time for maybe one or two questions. Who? Yes, that was a very quick hand. surrounded by a lake, or we all surround the lake, we don't have any water taxes here. That's the most efficient way of getting people across to a flow. You don't have to build infrastructure. It's already there. It's probably going to be a private party that's going to start it, but that private party, you know very well, does not want to make money off it. They want to keep the fares down so it serves the same people that we all want to serve. I don't want to build That's an interesting question. I think there are, so, so the point about partnerships and how we bring it all to bear, who pays for what, is really, I think, a key piece that was part of the theme here. Um, yes, these folks are all representing the public sector, but have a variety of experiences. I think what should be clear is that the public sector can't do it alone, and honestly, the private sector can't do it alone. We're reliant on one another, both for ideas, for funding, for, for responsibility and permitting. I think the water taxi question is an interesting one. We've obviously done a good job of figuring out how King County can operate a water taxi to West Seattle. We've got other partnerships with the ferry system. So it may be something to explore as we move forward. Can, can I just comment on that, though? I think it's important for the public entity to have a vehicle, no pun there, but a vehicle where the private sector can bring their ideas to us. Yeah, this is why we set up our Office of Extraordinary Innovation um, in, in Los Angeles. <laughs> <amazing>. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, having the avenue 
uh, through unsolicited proposals or things like that where the private sector can bring these ideas uh, and we bust up the bureaucracy to consider those ideas, I think is key. Another question here. Um, I'll take a stab. One of our revenue sources is actually a parking tax. And one of the revenue sources we tapped into for our transit expansion was an increased parking tax throughout the region. So, you know, we get our revenue source significant from gas tax, this little bit from parking tax. So there is a nexus between some of the taxes and fees that we get to put it back into the transportation uh, side of the equation. So I think it's really, at least in, in the Vancouver region, it's a little bit more what limitations there may be uh, on the parking uh, going forward. We don't build a lot of park and rides, so this region has a lot more park and ride space. It's also sort of based on the, um, the nature of how the transit system developed. The, the Vancouver region focused on just get better um, feeder bus service, so you don't have to build very, very important uh, expensive parking. And, you know, parking, whether it's surface lot or, or a structured garage, is not generally the highest, best use for a piece of dirt. And, you know, at, what is it, $50,000 a stall? I don't know what you, what's your current? Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculously expensive to build, um, build parking, and it's just not a great use. Where you can share the parking, um, I don't know what's, what's recent here, but King County Metro kind of pioneered that a number of years ago at Northgate, where you actually share the parking with a private development. So during the day, people take their cars someplace, and parking riders come in to get on the bus or eventually... Uh, light rail. So there are some interesting ways you can use parking and get better um, utilization um, of the parking. But I think in general, from my excuse me, from my perspective, um, the idea is eventually there's going to be less and less demand and need for that parking as we yeah. see uh, various different improvements in transit and eventually uh, the coming of automation. I'm sorry that we don't have time for more questions. I will say that our panelists will be available and out and about. We're going to get kicked out of this room pretty quickly, but I'm going to ask Emily from DSA to come up and close us out. Thank yeah, you all. Sure. So